Good morning. Have you had a warm week? Let's begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your blessings and your mercy and your grace. We ask that you will uh, send your spirit to be with us and lighten our minds. Fill our hearts with your love. May we be transformed to represent you faithfully. We want to thank you for sending Boyd back and bringing him to a point that he can join us again today. And be with those uh, members of our class who are ill and cannot be here today. That you will restore them to health in accordance with your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We are doing lesson number eight in our quarterly redemption in Romans, and the title this week is The Man of Romans 7. But before we even get into that today, I was listening uh, this week to um, Sigvi Tonstad. Anybody know Sigvi Tonstad? Sigvi Tonstad is a professor of theology and medicine uh, at Loma Linda University. And uh, he was doing Sabbath school at Loma Linda University a couple weeks ago, and I was listening to his recording. And he brought out an object lesson. He had three professors come up, and one of them held, for those of you who don't know, Harrison's textbook of internal medicine is basically the Bible of internal medicine uh, textbook for for residents and, and, uh, and medical students. And he had the person hold the 1977 version, which is the version he had when he went through medical school. And then, which was version 8. Edition 8. Then he had somebody hold the 2001 edition, uh, which was, I think, edition 13. And then he had somebody hold the 2008 edition, which was the uh, 18th edition. And he asked the audience, which would you recommend a medical student today or a resident today uh, use as their textbook to study medicine? And uh, believe it or not, there were three or four people that voted for the 1977 version in the audience. <laughs> but, yeah, it was, it was videoed. You could see it. Three or four people voted for the 1977 version. <laughs> There's about six that voted for the 2001 ver- version. And the rest voted for the uh, 2008 version. And his point is, he wouldn't want to go to a doctor today that was studying the 1977 version, would you? Because we understand that, that knowledge is progressive. And he said, what about our theology? Isn't it nice to study theology because it never changes? They were teaching this. <laughs> we're teaching the same thing today. They were teaching 500 years ago without any new growth or insights. And, and of course, he's, he's saying, no, it should be changing. Well, interestingly enough, uh, he pointed it out, and I went and checked, uh, checked it out on the Internet. And in fact, the principal contributor for our lesson for this week, and this may answer a few questions, is why we found some ideas uh, 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 difficult to, to understand. But the principal contributor, Don F. Neufeld, died in 1980, which means what we're studying was written over 30 years ago. So should, should, should there been any advance, should we have, expect any advances in our understanding of God's word in 30 years, or should it be the same? And then he went on to point out this whole, this whole evolution and how we understand Paul's writing, these insights that are coming from various theologians. And historically, one of the troubles we've had in uh, Protestant Christianity is Protestants have made some assumptions that Paul's uh, understanding and writings were parallel with Luther, or Luther's experience was parallel with Paul. And, and we've taken much of our understanding of Paul through the lens of Luther, And Luther's experience, if you remember, was 
I am a worm. I am awful. I, can't, I, am, I am vile. Remember, he came through that, that Catholic system where he would have to do penance and crawl up so many steps and kiss every step and pay all these different things. And so he had this real sense of personal worthlessness. And through that position came to experience the Savior and grace. And historically, much of Christianity has then looked at the epistles of Paul through that lens. The suggestion now, however, is, and and Sigvi documented the various theologians that have done this research, uh, that, in fact, Paul's position was different. If you remember, Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He didn't need a Savior. He wasn't a worthless worm that needed somebody. He was in good shape. What, what brought Paul, rather than coming from a position of being awful and needing a solution, Paul saw Jesus on Damascus Road. And his experience was seeing Christ, and in seeing Christ, recognized then his sickness. So Paul came from the position of seeing Christ first, and that brought him to conviction, versus being awful and looking for a solution. So really coming at it from two different perspectives. And then the idea that Paul's writings are primarily centraled on Christ, the Messiah, the representative of God, in the setting of the great controversy. And just think about all the texts in Paul's epistles about uh, we are a spectacle and a theater to angels, to men. That we war against principalities and powers of darkness. That we um, battle against those things that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. That those who exchange the knowledge of God uh, for a lie, their minds become futile, depraved, and darkened. That you know, the fullness of God dwelt in Christ bodily. That the epistles of Paul are not what Luther thought. They're really a... a representation of the great controversy over the character of God and that Christ was the champion of God and it's understanding Christ that actually um, frees us uh, to experience salvation. He goes on to say that there's this been, uh, through Luther and other, other his historians, there has been this idea that Paul's objection with Judaism, and we've been talking about that in Romans, has been that Judaizers were legalists. And that in Paul's day, uh, that if you were a Jew, that, uh, that you were saved by works. Well, uh, he's documented that they've gone back and looked at the theologians from Judaism at, at the time that Paul was alive, in the first century. And in fact, Judaism theology at that time was a salvation by grace first. And secondarily, once you're in grace, you change your life and you work and live differently. So Paul wasn't arguing uh, grace uh, against works, he was arguing, and his argument with, with Judaism was they rejected Christ. And having rejected Christ, God in flesh, they rejected the means through which grace works to achieve our salvation. So thinking grace was right, but then they rejected God's vehicle means and God in human flesh to achieve this. This was the argument. And so I put all this out to you because there's been this... Um, historical view that in our church we have regressed some in the recent years back towards a Reformation theology of Martin Luther. And this is taking us backwards in our thinking. And with this in mind, I I brought a a quotation out of the Review and Herald, August 7, 1894. This was written by Ellen White because she didn't have this kind of Luther view that she was talking on. This is what she says. And think about it in the context of whether we should be um, presenting the theology that's 30 years old or should we be growing in our theology. This is what she says. It is not safe for us as reformers. For us as, what are we supposed to be? Reformers. It is not safe for us as reformers to repeat the history of the reformers with a capital R. The reformers. In every particular. 
After those to whom God gave light advanced to a certain knowledge, many of them ceased to be reformers. We must not for a moment think that there is no more light and truth to be given us and become careless and let the sanctifying power of the truth leak out of our hearts by our attitude of satisfaction in what we have already attained. You follow the meaning here? You know, we've learned something new. It's wonderful. It's truth for this time. We've got the truth now. We're satisfied. We don't need to grow anymore. This is what the history of the Reformation has been. She's saying, we don't need to do this. We need to keep growing. She goes on to say, the people of God have educated themselves in such a way that they have come to look at those in position of trust as guardians of truth and have placed men where God should be. See if this is a problem today or not. When perplexities have come upon them, instead of seeking God, they have gone to human sources for help and have received only such help as man can give. The president of the conference is not to do the thinking for all the people. He is not an immortal brain, but has capabilities and powers like any other man. When men place the president of the conference in the place of God, they are doing that which is exactly opposite to what Christ has told them to do. What do you think about that? Do we struggle with these very things today? And we are to be thinkers for ourselves, to reason out the evidence for ourselves. And, and as we look at Romans, I, I'm going to challenge us as we look at Romans the rest of this quarter, to let's not go back 30 years, 50 years, let's not go back 400, 500 years to Luther. Let's move forward as reformers and unfold the truth and see it as God has intended it for us. So with that in mind, let's go on to, to our lesson today, man, man of Romans 7, Lesson 8. The second paragraph of Sabbath's lesson says, Bible students differ on whether Romans 7 was Paul's experience before or after conversion. Whatever position one takes, what's important is that Jesus' righteousness covers us and that in his righteousness we stand perfect before God, who promises to sanctify us, to give us victory over sin, and to conform us to the image of his Son. These are the crucial points for us to know and experience as we seek to spread the everlasting gospel to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Any thoughts, comments, questions? Very clear? If you read the paragraph, it says, we stand perfect before God. If we stand perfect before God, if that's true, which it says it is, that we stand perfect before God in Jesus' righteousness, then why does God need to then sanctify us and conform us to the image of His Son? If He's going to go on and sanctify us and conform us to the image of His Son, wouldn't that suggest we're not perfect? Hmm. So what would that then imply about God? We're standing there before God. God says we're perfect, but now He's going to heal us, fix us, and fix it, and, and... and conform us to the image of his son. Why would he need to do that if we're standing perfect before him? Ah. See, I don't like the implications of this type of theology about God. Do you like those implications? Does this sound exactly like what we were talking about 25, 30 years ago? Yes. Yes, it does. This is 30-year-old theology, sadly. Is there a different way to say maybe this idea? Could, could it mean, maybe, maybe this is what it means. Could it mean this? 
that we stand before God in a restored trust relationship with him. And in that trust relationship, he heals us and restores us to the image of his son. Now, would that be a problem? Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? The problem I have is this idea that when God looks at us, he really doesn't see our, our true condition. Or that God sees our true condition and realizes that we are, are still faulty, defective, sinful. But he declares or claims in some way that we're not. Those types of constructs really, really cut at the heart of our trustworthy God. And, and I think, um, well, to me, it makes it really hard to, to really put the pieces together. As we look at Romans 7, you guys are familiar with Romans 7, I hope. Uh, what do you think Paul is referring to? Is he referring to a converted man's experience with the struggles after conversion or an unconverted man's experience? And I suspect there's probably thoughts both ways. So I just put that out there for you. And this is, of course, the, the text, and we'll be looking at it in more detail today, that has to do with um, the things I, I, I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I find myself doing. This type of dialogue is in Romans 7. Uh, is that a converted man? Is that an unconverted man? The lesson says it's been argued for centuries which way it is. Let's see if we can't answer that question today. Paul's, Paul, Romans 7, 1 through 6, starts out with an analogy of a woman married, and after the death of her husband, she is no longer legally bound to her husband, because he's now dead. Um, he does this to say something about the relationship that these people were having to the law, possibly. What lessons do you derive from this? Do you derive any lessons from this analogy? Maybe we should read it. This is what it says. Romans 7, 1 through 3. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over man only as long as he lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So then, if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. Can, does that make a clear spiritual statement to you? Anybody thoughts on that? So, so if we're dead in Christ, that means that we no longer that, that's okay. That's so. For dead in Christ, maybe we're no longer tied to the law. Which law? Read third third paragraph Sunday's lesson. Third paragraph Sunday says, "As the death of her husband delivers the woman from the law of her husband, so the death of the old life in the flesh through Jesus Christ delivers the Jews from the law they had been expected to keep until the Messiah fulfilled its types." I saw a few heads nodding. That makes perfect sense now. Really, let me ask some questions. First off, it says that this delivers her from the law of her husband. Is that just semantics or is that the same thing as the last sentence of the previous paragraph? Which says, but when he dies, she is free from the law that bound her to him. The law that bound her to him. Is that the same thing as the law of her husband? No. See, I I read that and I thought, whoa. Wives, are you under a law of your husband? Hmm. Pardon? Is there a law that binds you to your husband? Hmm. Yeah. And notice the other thing that I had trouble with this paragraph was, 
It said, So the death of the old life in the flesh through Jesus Christ delivers the Jews. Are only the Jews delivered through the death of Jesus Christ? Oh, she says they're the only ones bound by the ceremonial law. Is that what Paul's talking about? See, this is the assumption. We project this in. Did Paul say the ceremonial law? He just said law. He just said law. So there's some law involved here. What law? Ceremonial law is the one we often think. And, and so we, we project in this. But, but when I look at Christ's death, was it more than just the Jews that were freed from something by his death? Yes. Was it more than just the Jews that need to die? He died for us all. He died for us all. But, but it's talking about, well, who, let's, let's take the text. Who's the woman in the text? I heard some people say the church. The heart. Ah, the heart or the human will. It's your heart. It's your human will. This is, this is the woman. And what are we, what law are we married to when we're born into this world? The law of sin and death. That's what the law we're married to. And until we die to self, we can't be married to Christ. And so when our will is dominated by selfishness, fear, me first, which is the way we come into the world, egocentric, self-centered. It's me. It's all about me. Then we can't be really married to Christ, can we? Our hearts can't be united with him if our hearts are still united with selfishness. But if we die to self, then our hearts can be bound up with Christ. So we can either, and, this, and if you read the context of Romans 6, this is exactly an extrapolation of Romans 6. Because Romans 6 was about being a slave to either sin or a slave to Christ. It's either one or the other. You, you're either bound to sin or you're bound to Christ. This is an extrapolation of that. Looking at this idea of, of the ceremonial, were the Jews previous to Christ involved in a system that's, within that system was able to provide salvation for them? Was salvation possible through the sacrificing of animals? The ritual was such that that's how they were supposed to go through the form of getting away or getting rid of their sin or She said the original was the, this is how they were supposed to get rid of their sin. When a sinner came and confessed sin on the head of an animal, was, was sin somehow like, you know, I don't know if you all know how foxes get rid of fleas. Foxes will grab a stick, put it in their mouth, and they will run out into the water, slowly walk into the water and hold their nose up. And all the fleas will run up to get out of the water and they'll go onto the stick and they let go of the stick. The fleas will transfer onto the stick. See, they're being transferred. Is sin being transferred off like the fleas off the, the fox? Is that what's happening when they confess? Was there actually any substance being transferred to the animal? Was the animal um, actually experiencing some guilt? Hmm. What's being transferred? Anything being transferred to the animal at all? Or is it a symbol? So it's not literal. When, when, think about symbols. Let's move away from the animal for a minute. When you take communion and you have a, a piece of unleavened bread, is there anything 
meritorious in that wafer? No, it's a symbol. And what are symbols supposed to do? What are the purpose of a symbol? Make us think. That's the, so it's, we, if you read in Isaiah chapter 1, the first section of Isaiah 1, God is all over these people. He is just berating them, giving them a lecture. For what? Well, you know, in the Old Testament, he, he got on to them for idolatry and all these other things, but not, not in Isaiah 1. In Isaiah 1, he's on them for feast days, Sabbath days, convocations, trampling in his courts, prayer, and all this kind. He's on to them for all this burnt offerings and all this stuff that he told them to do. Why is he on them for it? Because all these were symbols. And he, and he said, stop bringing meaningless offerings in verse 13. Meaningless. You don't know the meaning. You're just doing it without thinking. So in verse 18, he says, come, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet. So, you mentioned the, the transferring of sin in the old... So, the, back to the question. Was there anything saving in the actual carrying out of the ritual? Where was the salvation power coming? God's grace through Jesus Christ. That's where salvation is coming, even for the Jew in the Old Testament. Yes. Well, he says he has Adventist friends that like to keep the feast days like Passover and Pentecost and all these. He says, how do you talk to them and help them understand it's not important anymore? You don't. If they want to keep the feast days, as Paul says in Romans, let everyone be fully persuaded in their own mind. It hurts nothing. If they want to do Passover, there is no sin in carrying out that, that, that act. If it helps them think and remember what Jesus did for them and appreciate that, the historical review of what those symbols meant, there's nothing wrong with that. The problem is, if they invest that activity with some type of meritorious benefit, I do this, and now, through doing this, I am at a higher state of righteousness than the one who doesn't. Now, through doing this, I have achieved some level of sanctification that wouldn't come throughout doing this activity. That would be the problem. But if we're doing it simply because through this we can gain a greater insight into the lesson God was trying to teach, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, again, we don't have to go down that road at all. But some people, and I would ask them what are their motivations, why do they believe it's necessary? This is the question. So you're asking how do you approach them? Ask questions. Why do you believe this is necessary? What do you think will happen if you don't do that? See, these are the questions you want to ask to really under, understand their motivation for it. And then you can have a dialogue about that and look at the evidence of whether that's really necessary or not. Um, so the, the lesson suggests that these... Um, that this, this analogy of the married person was, a, was to deliver the, the Jewish people from the ordinance of the Jewish system. I'm suggesting um, that it's actually an analogy t- taught to deliver us from the law of sin and death. What do you all think? Romans, um, we just read Romans 1.3, and we just went through what the, what, the, what the woman is. The woman is its individual will. The first husband... Um, who dies is our carnal nature. We die to self. Selfishness, the law of sin and death. We are born, when we are born, we're enslaved to it. And the second husband then, of course, would be Christ and the law of love that he brings with him. Um, the last paragraph says that Paul would not suggest that the Ten Commandments were no longer binding. Was the ceremonial law binding? 
And if so, in what way? And who and why? Did people before Christ, if you were a person living on earth prior to, to Christ's arrivals and incarnation, would you have had to do sacrifices in the Jewish way in order to be saved? No. Look at Naaman. Look at Nebuchadnezzar. There are others we have that did not have to do these sacrifices in order to experience God's salvation. They weren't necessary. They weren't required. Then why do them? What was it all about? It's reminded of the promise that God gave them. It was to remind us of the promise that God was going to save. And why so strict for the Jewish people? Well, remember, the Jewish people were chosen for a purpose. What was their purpose? Exclusive salvation. Be a Jew or be lost. No, to prepare the world for the advent of the Messiah. So all this was given as object lessons for them to go out and spread and evangelize the world to do more rituals or to prepare to meet God in human flesh. And so this was a lesson book. And so if you, if you think this through, under the this, this spectacle that Paul gives, that we are a theater... Uh, the Old Testament Jewish nation was a theater. They had a really cool stage, a really brilliant, I mean, extravagant stage, with these really neat costumes that they wore. The high priest had the best costume of all. Right? And they had nice props, brazen altar, golden lampstand, lots, lots of nice props. Okay? And then they had a script. And who was the director of this play? Christ was the director of the play. Christ was the director. Now, who were the actors? The Jewish nation, the Jewish people. Now think about somebody today who decides they want to be an actor in a play. And they decide they're going to go on stage and they're going to deviate from the script and do their own thing. What will the director do? He will tell them to skip, stick to the script. He may take them back and practice with it some more and practice with it. And after a bit of time, though, this person is evident, never going to follow the script. What will the director do? Bring on their other study. Replace them. That's right. Bring on the understudy. Replace them. And so this is what you find happening in the Old Testament Jewish system. So God worked with them, worked with them, tried to get them to follow the script. They wouldn't, they wouldn't. And so, boom, he would throw them out and bring some, and bring some others in to, uh, to, to do it. And so this is what we have happening. There was no meritorious benefit in doing it other than the lesson it would teach us. Yes? Could you clarify again what the law versus lost in death? Yes. Um, I don't see in the text this is an analogy that the law is changing. I see that the husband is changing. Right? right. And so, did the law that made the husband legally married to the wife right. was the same law that married the second husband that had that wife. I guess that's one way to read it. I don't read it that way. I read it as that the woman, which is our heart and mind, was married to the law of sin and death, married to selfishness, and that, or, and that after our death, we died to sin and death, we're married to Christ. Now, one way that the law could be the same would be understanding God's law of love being the design template for life. We are born out of harmony with it, which is we're married, uh, we're married to this condition of sinfulness. And, the, and, and through dying to that condition, establishing our relationship to Christ, we have a new heart and right spirit. So we die to self, we live a new life to Christ. Um, Monday's lesson, fourth paragraph says, Thus Paul explains he would not have known if it was a sin to covet without having been informed by the fact by the law. Because 
Sin is the violation of the revealed will of God. Where the revealed will is unknown, there is no awareness of sin. When the revealed will is made known to a person, he or she comes to recognize that he or she is a sinner and is under condemnation and death. In this sense, the person dies. I was having a hard time reading because I got a lot of scribbles in there and I got my pen all over the thing. <laughs> see, see, see my page there? Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, what do you think about that? Is, is that clear also? Could you, what do you think about the definition of sin? Because sin is the violation of the revealed will of God. That sounds hard. You already read Romans 1 and 2. That makes it clear. Do you, do you think this is like um, if you have someone who is in a, a, an abusive, dysfunctional marriage and has not seen or, or was raised in a home like that and has not seen what a loving home would be like, but then they go visit a friend or cousin or whoever and they see what the interaction in a loving home would be like? that now they know that that was, their heart told them it was wrong, but now they see. Okay, she talks about if you were in a home that was very dysfunctional, abusive, and that's the only home you ever knew, and now you go into a home for the first time where there's genuine love being demonstrated, that now you have a revealed evidence of what love looks like. Before that, you really had no clue what it was like, and now you're informed. Well, question. If you were in that dysfunctional home where there's all types of abuse going on and you haven't had a revelation of what love looks like, does that mean that you're in a healthy state because you haven't known what love looks like? No. Or are you still in a dysfunctional, unhealthy state? Until you internalize and make a shift in yourself, you still are unhealthy. So this would imply, though, that until you have the revealed will of God, it's not sin. In heaven, when Lucifer went around starting his rebellion. Was God's will revealed by the law? Which law? Any given law. And in fact, there's a, it says, the thoughts amounts amount of blessing, page 109. But in heaven, service is not rendered in spirit of legality. When Satan rebelled against the law of Jehovah, the thought that there was a law came to the angels almost as an awakening to something unthought of. In their ministry, the angels are not as servants, but as sons. There's perfect unity between them and their creator. Obedience to them is no drudgery. So what happened in, if God's will was so clearly revealed in heaven, how could one-third of perfect angels in a face-to-face relationship with God without any carnal nature rebel against his revealed will if it was so clearly revealed? You see, I mean, I'm just suggesting that this idea that is too narrow... This idea of sin being rebellion against the revealed will of God is too narrow. That's all I'm suggesting. It certainly would include this, I think. If you know God's clear revealed will and you rebel against it, that certainly would. I'm not saying it's not sin. I'm just saying it's too narrow. Do you think it's too narrow? Yeah, okay. So what was the purpose then of the written law? To make sin easier to see, yes? To make sin easier to see. What about the idea of recognizing oneself as a sinner under condemnation and death, and in this sense, the person dies? That's what the lesson said. When we recognize ourselves as a sinner under condemnation and death, in this sense, the person dies. What would that mean in this sense? Do you think that means we die? Well, recognition alone doesn't 
cause the death. You can still she says recognition alone doesn't cause the death. In psychiatry, we have a saying, insight does not equal change. I have many patients that have insight into what's wrong. They know they have a problem. I have alcoholic patients that know. They're, they're in the ICU. Liver failure. Oh, yeah, I know. What are you going to do when you leave? I'm going to go drink. Why? Because I like how it feels. But it's going to kill you. I know, but i got to die of something. I mean, insight does not equal change. Yes. That's true. Without insight, insight actually, if we don't realize there's a problem though, see, this is the reason for the law. The law was given to expose that we have a problem because without knowledge that we have a problem, then there is no change. That's, that's absolutely true. Good point. Thank you. Romans 7, 7 through 11. This is the NIV. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. Is that very clear? You're getting the essence of what that means. I see a lot of confused looks. Here's my paraphrase. See, see if this, this, and follow along again in your scriptures. See if this is staying true to the meaning. What shall we say then? Is the law evil and selfish because it increases the amount of evil and selfishness we see? Absolutely not. For I would not have known what evil and selfishness looks like if it wasn't for the diagnostic efficacy of the law. I would not have realized that coveting was evil and selfish if the law didn't say don't covet. But selfishness, taking advantage of the fact that the law is only a diagnostic instrument and not a remedy, magnified every covetous desire within me. For apart from the diagnostic ability of the law, sin is unrecognizable. Once I thought I was healthy and free from the infection of distrust, fear, and selfishness, but then the commandment examined me, exposed how utterly infected I was, and diagnosed me as terminal. I discovered that the very commandment given only to diagnose my condition, I had unwittingly attempted to use as a cure, and thus my condition only worsened. For selfishness, taking advantage of the fact that the commandment could, not, could only diagnose and not cure, deceived me into thinking I could be cured by working to keep the commandments. But instead, my terminal state only worsened. What do you think? That's a good point. Um, there's a balance. There's a balance. We are to take a moment and reflect on our condition. But we are not to spend our lives dwelling on that condition, lest we become discouraged, lest we become negative, lest we become hopeless. And so after we recognize our condition, then we focus on, fix your eyes on Christ, the physician and the remedy, and let this hope spring forth in you. And you fix your eyes on what you will become. But you, you, you're aware of the condition that is being remedied. 
but you don't spend your time ruminating about the condition. I think that's a great point. Yes? If you hear about the ground, you're out there in the water, you're going to be doing some serious paddling and try to get out of the water. You're not going to be thinking, oh, I'm just a terrible person. You're going to be doing whatever you can to keep breathing and get back to land. You're working real hard to, to stay alive. Okay, and let's say you're out in the water and you're in the middle of the Pacific Ocean by yourself and you're swimming really hard. Are you gonna, it doesn't matter how hard you swim. If you don't have a savior come rescue you, you're still going to drown. Okay, that's more, if you're going to use that analogy, it seems to me that would be more accurate. There's no amount of swimming we can do that will get us out of our situation. Is that not true? Yes. Yeah, actually, you can be thankful before you reach the shore. As soon, if you're out there swimming in the Pacific Ocean and you're drowning and you're exhausted and you've been working really hard, and we've all been there. How many have come on tried to work yourself into righteousness? Come on, be honest. Put those hands up. Okay, all right. And, and you've gotten tired and you got discouraged, and so you're out there in the ocean and you're working. And, and as soon as you see that Navy helicopter with that rescue diver jump in the water next to you, don't you? And he, and he grabs you. You're still in the water. Don't you go? Ah, oh, joy, happiness. Ah, oh, aren't you feeling relieved already? Either way, it makes it so much yeah, yeah. But as soon as you realize that, isn't that true? Yeah. Yes. Sometimes you're so busy drowning, you can't see that somebody's paddling a boat toward you. You don't see the, you know, earth. Actually, she said, she's, makes a great point. Sometimes you're so busy drowning, you don't see the boat paddling. There's a quote by Ellen White. I don't have it with me, so I probably won't get it exactly right, but it goes something like this. Um, there are times in the, in the lives of everyone in which um, discouragement and despair are the portion of life, in which um, death seems preferable to life. And it's at times like those that many lose their faith. And if we could lift our eyes and see with, with a heavenly vision, we would see God's angels seeking to plant our feet on firmer grounds and save us from ourselves. It's a very powerful quote because what we're being saved from is ourselves, our own discouragement, our own pain, our own ruminating, our own focusing on the problem. And if we could see past it to realize, hey, we're not about to drown because we have a Savior who's right there willing to, to, to save us and set us free. Tim? Yes. I want to bring up that pink elephant in the room. Which is? A pink elephant in the room. <laughs> when I hear that, I think, okay, we're not supposed to bring up sin or talk about it because we're going to then really talk about it, talk about it, talk about it. But you know what? When you tell your kids don't have sex and then you walk out of the room, oh, that leaves too many things. You're curious. And if you brought a pink elephant in here and just stood it here, I'd be going, how'd that pink elephant get in here? How come it's pink? You don't have elephants in Tennessee. But if you sat down with me and you said, okay, we have a pink elephant in the room. It's pink because it happened to go through a pink sudsy soapwash, whatever. And we got it here because somebody lost it down in the Atlanta Zoo. And we're trying to figure out if you could do it in 10 minutes versus the 20 hours that I would just imagine all kinds of things. You could shut it down quicker. And I think that discussing sin and why it's a sin and how it affects us and what we can do about it and how we can be saved from it. It's much better than just cutting it off and saying it's a sin. I like very much what she's saying. And do you find we try to do that in this class? Maybe not. Because, because what she's saying is, don't just give rules without reasons. Explain why. Explain the reasons. Why is it thou shalt not? 
do X, Y, and Z. Uh, and, and I've given the example in here before, and you've all heard it before, but if, if we were raised, we've all been raised to brush our teeth, but if there's no reason for it, and we only do it because there's a rule, at some point in our adulthood, once we leave home, if we've never figured out a reason why, we'll stop doing it. So too with these things we tell our kids. That at some point, they have to understand the reasons for it. We gave some reasons a week or two ago about how when we engage in these behaviors, we actually change ourselves. Change ourselves neurologically, change ourselves genetically, expression change, pass those changes on to our children. So the things you do to yourself, you're actually harming your children and your grandchildren. Things you're doing healthy for yourself, you're actually going to pass along benefits to your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, through down through the generations. This is a reality of the way God designed us. And so we can explain, and, uh, and you know, I'm going to do a program sometime. I did one in Chattanooga two weeks ago, and we're going to do some more here for the public on the developing brain and what kinds of influences both um, transgenerationally, things that happened before you were even conceived, affected the kind of person you are today, the things that happened gestationally, and then the things that happen in your own life experience impact and change you. I'm going to do a program like that sometime, uh, again here in the near future, and we'll, we'll let you know. But you'll find the science behind this fascinating. And when we explain this and show how we were designed, and how there is a direct link between God's principles and laws, and the actual transformation of the individual person, then I think you're right people will say, oh, I don't want to do that. That's stupid. But all too often, we just give a rule without reason. And then it becomes your decision. Right. And, 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 now, and when we give rule without reason, what happens, then they end up in a power struggle. What about me? I've got my own, I can make up my own decision. And then the old argument, I'm just hurting myself. I'm not hurting anybody but me. Yeah. yeah. That's why as a parent, they always say that explain to a child the rule at their level of understanding, but always explain. Exactly. No matter how long. Tuesday's lesson and actually states some really good stuff. And I want to just read it to you because I think it's, it's, it's got some good things in here. It talks about the, the law is good for what it does, but it can't do what it was never meant to do to save us from sin. For that we need Jesus because the law, whether the entire Jewish system or the moral law in particular, cannot bring salvation. Only Jesus and his righteousness, which comes to us by faith, can. In this verse, Paul is presenting the law in the best sense possible. He chooses to blame sin, not the law, for the terrible sinful condition. That is, his working all manner of concupiscence, uh, which is lust. The, the law is good, for it is God's standard of conduct, but as a sinner, Paul stood condemned before it. Carnal means fleshly, thus Paul needed Jesus Christ. Only Jesus could take away the condemnation. Only Jesus Christ could free him from the slavery of sin. See, all, that is, all that's true. We could only be freed from, by Jesus, isn't that true? The law wasn't meant to save us. The law was meant to diagnose us. What about the condemnation? What about the condemnation? Anybody want to talk about that? What about the bottom green section? We kind of just mentioned already the answer to this, but here's where it says in the, in the sentence. What has been your own experience on how sin enslaves? Have you ever tried to play with sin thinking you could control it as you wished, only to find yourself under a vicious and merciless taskmaster? Have you ever... Uh, any thoughts about that? Uh, we kind of just mentioned it briefly. Why shouldn't we play with sin? It feeds ourselves. What is the problem with sin? Oh, he damages a sinner? Cuts us off from God's love? You mean the problem isn't we have a bigger list on our books in heaven? 
Does it want to go play in quicksand? And, and you know, those, those are good analogies, but, but um, I would add, actually say a better analogy would be, do you want to play with plutonium? What if you just hold some plutonium and you feel the warmth in your hand for a few minutes? Will you walk away unaffected? No, you will be damaged by that experience. And that's like sin. When you play with sin, you will be damaged by the experience. Now, when you play with plutonium... When you walk away, do you initially know you're damaged? Do you initially feel the damage? Do you see the damage? Or does it take time for that damage to show up? That's just like sin also. Sin doesn't initially show its damage. It's slow. It's pervasive. It's insidious. And it, it's, it's, it actually numbs you so that you even lose awareness. Sin is very much like Alzheimer's dementia. Alzheimer's dementia is a disease that actually destroys the brain cells. But people with dementia, Alzheimer's type, generally don't know they've lost anything. I'm just... Have you had any trouble with your memory lately? No, I'm fine. What's day today? Oh, I don't keep up with that anymore. What'd you do yesterday? Oh, just the usual stuff. These are the kind of answers you get. They don't know. And this is how sin is. We actually lose discernment, wisdom, perspective, motivation, healthy uh, values, and we don't even know there's a problem. We still think we're okay. It numbs us to it. So this is why we don't play with it. Wednesday's lesson. I was just wondering if you could comment on sometimes the sin of um, overeating, smoking, drinking, it's a little easier to overcome because it's kind of she says for her the sins of like smoking eating drinking they're easy ones for her not to get caught up in the hard ones for her are the things that happen in her mind like when somebody offends her and she gets that irritable or grudge feeling towards vengeance towards them and uh, and then she says oh okay I'll be gracious I'll forgive them God will you know God God they may not know God's love yet and blah, blah, blah. and that goes on for a while and then out of the blue comes this oh I just wish they would die feeling (laughs) do you ever struggle with that yes okay yes yes that was Paul was talking about and I want to get to that maybe we should jump to that right now and I'm going to read to you some of my paraphrases see if this helps understand what's going on Um, we'll start with verse 13 did the law which did good by diagnosing what was wrong with me become the source of my terminal condition of course not It only exposed what was already in me so that I could recognize how totally decayed, putrid, and near death I was. So that through the lens of the commandment, I might become utterly disgusted with evil and selfishness and long for a cure. We know that the law is consistent, verse 14, we know that the law is consistent, reliable, and reasonable, but I am inconsistent, unreliable, and unreasonable because the infection of distrust, fear, and selfishness has warped my mind and damaged my thinking. I am frustrated with what I do. For having been restored to trust, I want to do what is in harmony with God and his methods and principles. But I find that even though I trust God, old habits, conditioned responses, preconceived ideas, and other remnants of the devastation caused by distrust and selfishness are not yet fully removed. Verse 16. And if I find an old habit causing me to behave in ways that I now find detestable, 
I affirm that the law is a very helpful tool revealing residual damage in need of healing. What is happening is this. I have come to trust God and desire to do His will, but old habits and conditioned responses, which present almost reflexively in certain situations, have not yet been totally eliminated, and thus cause me to do things I do not want to do. I know that my mind was completely infected with distrust, fear, and selfishness, which totally perverted all my desires and faculties, so that even when distrust has been eradicated and trust has been restored, the damage caused by years of distrustful and selfish behavior has not been fully healed. So I find at times I have the desire to do what is right, but do not yet have the ability to carry out that desire. For the old habits and conditioned responses are not the good that I want to do. Oh, no, they are the remnants of my selfish, unconverted mind. So if I find myself doing what I no longer desire to do, it is not I, but vestiges of old habits and conditioned responses that have yet to be removed and through God's grace will soon be removed. What do you all think? You see, there's a difference between our heart's desire when we are converted and habit patterns of neural circuitry that has not yet been reprogrammed or rewired. And sometimes we will find ourselves in certain situations where we will act reflexively without thought. And that just is evidence to us that there's a lot more healing to do. But that doesn't mean we're in an unconverted state. Because as soon as the awareness hits what you just did, I can't believe I reacted like that. The converted man in the heart is grieved. God, I am so weak. I am so sick with myself. I don't want to be like this. Oh, who's going to save me? What wretched man am I? Who will save me from this body of death? And then as we continue in that growth and that relation with him, over time, neural circuits are pruned back. If we continue to leave them dormant and don't fire them, there's actually rewiring. And over time, people who will tell you have struggled with addictions. And in the beginning, it was such a battle. They had so many cravings. They had so many temptations. They maybe relapsed several times back before they actually had a time of freedom from it. As they stay uh, uh, in a new way of life, there comes a time where, where the thought of that addiction has no appeal anymore. It's actually repulsive. What's happened? There's been a rewiring of the brain circuitry. Well, this is true for the things that have enslaved us. So I would encourage you that when that happens, that doesn't mean it is active, ongoing sin. Uh, this is what it says in James chapter 1. No one should say that God tempts, because God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Each one of us are tempted when we're drug away and enticed by our own evil desire. When the desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. Sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Notice the, 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 the steps here. We have a desire, an impulse, a craving, a, a, an emotion, uh, something uh, that's, that's pulling us to tempt us. But that is not sin. That is what tempts us. When the desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. The conception is when we actually, in our heart, heart, anterior cingulate cortex, with our will, choose it and say, yes, yes, that's what I want. When we say, oh, man, I feel like I just want that. But no, I really don't want that. I want to have a heart that doesn't want that. Okay? I have that desire, but I really don't want it. Change me, Lord. Yes. Yes. She says that she feels God is very busy and sometimes he could benefit from her help. Yeah. You had a hand, yes. Oh, I was just thinking about uh, how sometimes you said about like somebody that doesn't smoke, doesn't smoke, but they're thinking, man, I wish I had a cigarette, man, I wish I had a cigarette. That's right. And like thinking like like, well, I haven't smoked in thirty years, but I've wanted to for 
30 years. It's like, but how do you do that with your mind? Like, I haven't thought people thought, but like, I mean, like, it's so hard because the... This is, a, no, this is excellent. She is describing the Pharisee, the legalist, this, the, the addict who is not recovered, what they call the dry drunk. This is the person who recognizes it's bad to do it, but in their heart, they want to do it. Paul, prior to his conversion, used to think what righteousness was this, looking at a woman and lusting in your heart after and wanting to do bad things with her, but then using your willpower to choose not to. That would be righteousness. But then after conversion, he said, whoa, whoa, I thought I was righteous. But then the commandment, notice which commandment he chose. We read it already today. Which one? Thou shalt not covet. Why did he choose the tenth? Because if you look at the commandments, all of the first nine can be observed behaviorally. Only the tenth is a heart issue. And he he, he goes, whoa, I thought I was Pharisee of Pharisees keeping the law. Until the commandment examined me and said, don't covet. And I realized I'm not even supposed to want it in my heart. Then I realized how sick and putrid I was. So the person who is avoiding their, their tobacco, because they know they've got COPD, and if they do, they're going to die young. And they don't want to die young, but the way they just sit every day thinking about the good old days when they could smoke. They're not free from tobacco. And the way the brain works, if, if you, if you um, activate those neural circuits, see, we can take um, predators, pedophiles, and we can lock them up in prison, and we can prevent them from acting on it behaviorally. But we can't control what they do in their imagination. And if they imagine the same type of detestable behaviors, they activate the same neural circuits, and those neural circuits don't degrade over time. They actually get stronger. And so uh, this is why it tells us in the Scripture that we are to bring every thought into captivity to Jesus Christ. Because the thoughts we think and the neural circuits we activate send electrical energy through those circuits, which actually cause enzymes to be produced, which will cause those circuits to expand and get stronger. But if we leave those circuits dormant, don't activate them they will be pruned back over time. It's actually transforming. And so I, I'm glad you brought that up. In our experience, then we have a battle. And Ellen White says that from the cross to the crown, there is a daily battle with self to do. What's the cross? What's, what's that sim- symbolic of in our journey? Conversion. From conversion, that's when we've accepted the cross of Christ. What's the crown? glorification, second coming, when he delivers us from this carnal flesh that we live in, this fallen nature. So from the time we're converted until the time Christ comes, there's a daily battle with self to do. Now, we can do things to tip the balance in our favor. We can do things to to make sure we lose that battle. We can tip the balance in our favor by a healthy lifestyle. What happens, let's say, with your irritable mood if you're sleep-deprived? Are you more patient, more kind, more easygoing when you are up uh, all night and worked a third shift? And, or No, yes, it, it impairs prefrontal cortex. We are less capable. So just how about if you're intoxicated? Can you, can you be more gracious and loving and kind and patient and reasonable, um, self-governed and so forth? No, we can tip the balance in our favor by applying God's principles. This is why he gave us all of these instructions and laws, because he wants to tip the balance in our favor. And of course, tip the balance in our favor most importantly by daily partaking of Jesus Christ. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part with me. By beholding, we become changed. We actually become assimilate and become like that which we admire and worship. So if we partake of healthy materials, then the mind will slowly be transformed by that process. 
But it's not simply a regimented, works-based reading schedule to make sure you read the Bible in one year. That will do no, no good for your brain. It is a slow, thoughtful assimilation of the meaning of what is there. So you have to contemplate and think and go, what does this mean? How does it apply to my life? What significance does it say? What does it tell me about the kind of being God is? These are the things, and when you have those appreciations and the lights go on, then transformation things happen. For instance, what does it say about God? And how, how, how did God use law, and what does it say about him? We can't be saved by law. We can't be saved by the commandments. So what does it say that, that God used so much law? Did he use a lot of law? What is it, why did he do it, and what does it say about him? Doesn't it say he loves us, that he's gracious, that he's merciful, that he's kind, that he's trying to help us, that he's trying to bring us to a point that we realize what, what's going on with us, he's trying to, to save us and turn us around, he's trying to enlighten us. Isn't he gracious and good? Do you think he liked to use all this law? No, it was added layer after layer because we needed it. Yes? When we contemplate the law of God, we're really contemplating the spirit. And that is part of that transformational process. Really contemplating his... Doesn't it depend on, on which lens we view it through? Yes, because I can tell you there are versions of this whole thing that are very forensic and legal, that love to talk about the law, and they put God in a horrible light. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. We understand it as that, that principle on which life is built. And then we participate with that in faith and trust. Then we have a transforming power. We don't want to be takers. We want to be givers. And as we participate in that process, it frees us from fear and insecurity, doesn't it? And so as our children are born into the world, they're born into the world with a heart and mind that's focused on self. And what we want to do is we want to flood them with love. Love not just in a sentimental, emotional way, but love in a structured way. Love that holds accountable. Love that reveals truth. Love that teaches. Love that disciplines. The Lord disciplines those he loves. Yeah. And so this is what our goal is, to help the child experience that they are valued and they are loved so that they can learn to, to practice those same principles in their life. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have been so patient with us. Lord, there's been so much misrepresentation about you, and those misrepresentations have caused so much pain and suffering, distrust and fear, insecurity, people frantically trying to fix their own circumstance and situation, watching out for themselves, always covering our own backs rather than trusting you with our future, with the outcomes of our lives, and choosing to apply your methods as we understand them. We pray that as we go forth, that this, this community of believers will experience more of your love, that we will experience a unity, a bonding of friendship, and at one minute that you have told us you want to bring us to for that great day when all things in heaven and earth shall be again under one head, even Jesus Christ. We pray in your holy name. Amen.